Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sustainable Saints. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Today, our show is going to focus mainly on COP26. However, before we get to COP26 and before we get to actually discussing St. Andrew's role in this upcoming climate conference, I'm going to do my usual political update. So first off, I want to discuss an experience I had. I attended a seminar run by Elizabeth Colbert and David Wallace-Wells. Elizabeth Colbert is the author of Under White Sky, The Nature of the Future, and David Wallace-Wells is the author of Uninhabitable Earth. Both are very well-known journalists and authors within the climate movement, and they came together to discuss the future of the climate and specifically geoengineering. So for our listeners who don't really know what geoengineering is, it kind of can be shelved into two different brackets. So the first bracket is bioenergy and carbon capture storage or direct air capture. So basically the idea that we can suck out carbon from the air, whether that be through, you know, huge fans and, um, you know, commercial machines that can just take carbon out and put it into the ground through, you know, and they eventually actually turn it into a rock almost, so a rock formation. So basically just take carbon out and ambient carbon and then put it into the ground um, for centuries, basically, so for it to be there permanently. The other bracket is um, solar geoengineering or solar radiation management. And that is basically the premise that we pump sulfur aerosols into the atmosphere. And what happens then is that instead of the incoming solar radiation hitting Earth, bouncing back, and being absorbed by the pre-existing carbon emission or greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, that solar radiation would bounce back from the sulfur aerosols in the atmosphere. This is an extremely risky, and dare I say, disastrous policy that is increasingly getting more currency. Um, so in the seminar, they discussed the nature of the future, and they discussed all of these projects happening and how we might mitigate climate change in the future, not really endorsing these policies, but more just bringing them to the fore and discussing the very uneasy ethical implications that are involved in both. I think especially for solar geoengineering, it's like the idea that we can out-engineer ourselves from a crisis born from our own ceases engineering is an incredibly dangerous and problematic philosophy that continues to have real sway in our society. Personally, what I fear is that we get to a point where climate chaos is all around us and the impacts of climate crisis are so bad that we need an immediate fix. And solar geoengineering can kind of provide that because as soon as you pump sulfur aerosols into the air, it immediately has a cooling effect. And we've seen this in natural systems. For example, when a volcano erupts, they, that volcano also emits sulfur and that um, really results in a drop in temperature immediately. However, there are hosts of other implications that we do not know of. For example, this could impact biodiversity because a radically different atmosphere is obviously not conducive to the pre-existing species and life on Earth. Um, it also has been shown to potentially impact the Asian monsoon, so it could lead to decreasing precipitation. That obviously has a host of different issues such as drought or famine. So, I mean, I think it's an incredibly reckless idea that we would out-engineer ourselves out of this crisis by just putting sulfur into the atmosphere. Not to mention that if you do that, you continuously entrench the fossil fuel economy and people are already dying from that. I mean, the pollution in the air kills around 9 million people per year. So it would just, it, it, it's a crazy idea. And this seminar was really interesting just by discussing what's going on. They also talked about gene editing, 
you know, uh, Elizabeth Colbert brought up the this project that this invasive toad species or frog species in Australia that was introduced to curb the beetle population. Um, eventually, that frog got out of control and became an invasive species, and now it's a real pest. However, now scientists are editing these frogs so that they're no longer poisonous. Um, is that a good thing? I mean, I suppose so, but we don't know the repercussions about gene editing. It could be a disaster. And you know, a similar project is happening in Hawaii where scientists are working on gene editing coral so that they can survive um, you know, warmer waters and warmer air. And we know that the oceans will be heating for centuries. So this is an unavoidable impact. And we're forced with the question, will we allow these species to die as an impact of our own wrongdoing? Or is it if we intervene even more, you know, if we commit to intervening on a massive scale, if we learn how to become better gods, if you will, as some authors have phrased it, what are the repercussions of that? And we don't know. And I think it's something we need to increasingly navigate and, you know, kind of figure out amongst us. Okay. And so, yeah, that kind of covered part of what I want to discuss. Another not very fun story is what's happening in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin hunters, you know, Wisconsin, for those of you who don't know, is a state in the United States. It has killed 216 wolves in less than 60 hours, which is just an abominable statistic. So what's happened basically is that the local legislative force or the local wildlife association has issued more permits than they were allowed to and has resulted in more than 82 percent you know, of wolves being killed above the quota. So we're seeing an eradication of wildlife, which is just crazy. And gray wolves, which have been previously, you know, trafficked and killed to unsustainable levels, have recovered after they've been protected under the Endangered Species Act. However, the Trump administration removed them from that legislative protection, and now they're being killed in mass. So it's really frightening. And hopefully that will be resolved sooner rather than later, and that it will never happen again. And not to mention the fact that people even think that it's okay to kill such a beautiful animal is beyond me. Um, lastly, what I want to bring up is a very interesting opinion piece in The Guardian talking about the climate crisis and how it won't be solved by carbon accounting tricks. You know, we've seen loads of countries, in fact, over 100 countries have now committed to net zero emissions by around the middle of the century. And not just countries, but also very wealthy financiers and, you know, just general financial actors. Um, the issue, of course, is that there's a lot of greenwashing that occurs in these pledges. For example, the former chief of the Bank of England, who's now the head climate advisor for Boris Johnson, said that one of the portfolios he manages, like a billion, multi-billion dollar portfolio, is carbon neutral, even though it has investments in the fossil fuel industry. And the way he justifies that is by saying, oh, but I'm also investing in renewable energy which is just completely ridiculous because if we want to solve the climate crisis, we obviously need to stop emitting carbon and other greenhouse gases as soon as we can. And that carbon will remain in the atmosphere. So the, the renewable energy projects that you're financing, great, but it's not doing anything about actually mitigating carbon. It's only supplementing a fossil fuel infrastructure and economy. Another very interesting example is that Shell has promised it will reach net zero despite projecting that they will continue to drill for oil at excessive rates through 2050 and beyond. That's just insane. Like, how is how are they even allowed to come out with such projections? Like, they're literally underwriting climate collapse. 
But they say, oh, but well, we're going to offset this with technologies, like I said before, like direct air capture, which are not advanced and they're still not commercially viable. Meanwhile, on the global scale, we're on track to cut our emissions by 0.5% by 2030, which is so far off from the 45% emission cut that we need to do by 2030, which the IPCC projects would put us on path to net neutrality by 2050. Hi everyone. Okay, thank you so much for that introduction, Noah. Um, so, as you guys know, myself, Noah, and Leah are part of the Environmental Sustainability Board. Of course, Leah can't be with us today. Um, but on behalf of the Environmental Sustainability Board, we basically, since March, been working on. Well, we have a working group, um, specifically related to COP26, and it was created back when we thought that the conference was going ahead in November 2020. Um, Essentially, what we wanted to do was uh, the university wanted to have a huge pivotal role um, in COP26, specifically because the conference for the first time was being held so close to home. Um, and so uh, we realized that there was a lot of work to do. And in doing so, um, one of the ESB members created two internships that will be available to other students at the university. So I would like to introduce to you both Monty and Mai, who are our two um, COP26 student interns for this year, who will essentially basically be leading the university forward in terms of what our engagement is with the, with the climate conference in November. So I'm just going to start with um, Mai, if you can just introduce yourself, tell everyone what you study, what you're interested in, um, and what your plans are um, in terms of your uh, well, ambitions for the role. Hey, of course. Thank you so much for um, having us on the show. I'm May, and I'm a third-year student studying management. Um, I am from the south of India, so I'm an international student here. Um, I am. I was interested in this project in COP26, participating in it, and in well, environmental action in general, because of just the things that I've experienced and seen back home. We are a developing country and it's very intriguing for me to be in the UK and see the different initiatives and, and things that are, that are going on here. And of course, also uh, the fact that the actions of develop, developed countries are really, really impacting the future of countries like mine. So um, that would intrigue me and I thought this was a great opportunity to be a part of what's happening and sort of help further it. Um, of for the past year, I've been the on the student council. I've been the member of the first years, and uh, through that role, I had a chance to connect with a lot of students, and I realized the um like my passion for sort of um furthering information gaps, um and sort of helping students stay in the loop. Um, so my role in with COP26 is called student reporter, and it is pretty much what it means. Uh, what it says so i am reporting on things that the university is doing up till cop 26 and will be doing in cop 26 so i'm developing all communication channels and uh, working with the environment team and the esb student board um just to further that that's great thank you so much monty if we move on to you now Hello everyone, uh, thank you Deanna and Noah for having me on. So my name is Monty Jones. I am from New Hampshire, which is just north of Boston in the States. I am a third year chemistry student and I'm the project coordinator for the discussions here at the university around COP26. 
I'm interested in like the environment as I love the outdoors and I want to make sure that we preserve and protect the place that we all call home. Selfishly, I'm a big hiker, skier and love um, nature. And so I just don't want to lose what I've been able to experience so far in my life and want to make sure that future generations can have a similar experience that I've been so fortunate to have so far. Um, this is an international emergency and a problem we can all play a role in fixing. And whether you are a scientist, a diplomat, a designer, or a construction worker, climate change affects everyone, and everyone um, plays a role in solving this major crisis. I began a project of seaweed cultivation here in St. Andrews, eventually hoping to expand into a 3D polyculture aquifarm. Seaweed cultivation and 3D polyculture aquifarm is the most sustainable farm currently known and is highly beneficial to the environment, ranging from cleaning the seas of phosphates and nitrates, maintaining a healthy pH level, and seaweed is one of the best natural carbon captures um, species on Earth. So really looking forward to where this project kind of takes the group in the years to come. Um, so that's basically just a brief introduction on me and my environmental interests. Oh, thank you so much for that. Um, I think it was really well said, you know, you kind of linked it to um, how much climate change is affecting everyone and even, I don't know, every sort of role out there is going to have to have some um, some participation in our climate, our actions for the climate emergency, against the climate, um, climate warm, global warming. I don't know why I can't speak today. Okay, um, so so that our listeners have a better understanding of what your roles are would you mind both telling me you know if somebody says to you if we flash forward to it's november now what would you want to say that you have done and you've achieved um monty if we start with you first this time um i suppose to be able to look back and just see the change in students um and that the students feel have felt more connected with the university becoming more sustainable them feeling their voices are being heard and then they feel that they can and are contributing to making the university more environmentally friendly, along with seeing the success in developing conversations here on campus between the various groups that are tackling the climate change crisis and seeing the community just overall just come together and work together to achieve um, the common goal of solving or trying to solve this climate change crisis. Great, thank you, Monty. Um, and my? Um, yeah, I think, just like you mentioned, we're really lucky that the COP26 is happening in Glasgow and we're really close by. Um, so I hope at that point, um, like Monty said as well, that most students have had the opportunity to get involved and not just like based on what the university is doing on campus or within town, um, but also um, for them to feel well connected with COP26 itself, even though it's high profile and it's gonna involve um, a huge range of speakers and leaders um, in, involved in discussions. Um, so yeah, I just hope that they feel well informed at that point. That's great to hear. Thank you so much for that. Okay, and then if we just talk about COP26 more in general, do you guys know, obviously you've done a lot of research already. Um, I know that Monty, you currently have a questionnaire that's going around. So if there's any listeners out there, please do um, take a look. Maybe we'll share it on, on our Facebook page later. But I know you guys are doing a lot of research 
um, on how to get involved with COP26. Do you know of any of where we stand in comparison to other universities? So obviously, as you've mentioned, um, St. Andrews is in it. Uh, is at an advantage because we're close to Glasgow um, but do you know if there are any other universities out there that are also while trying to have a pivotal role um, in COP in the COP conference I don't know who wants to take this one Monty do you want to go first uh, sure I can go first um, so yeah I mean this is quite a broad question because I've been doing a lot of research um, this kind of past couple of weeks on this topic um, and it varies on depending on who you really ask. Like in terms of our ambition and strategic plan that St. Andrews has laid out this past year, we rank in the top 10 of the universities in the UK and first amongst Scottish universities, according to the Carbon Target.UK, um, which is a scoring system set out by the Student Organization. Organizing for Sustainability, UK National Union for, of Students, the University and College Union, and People and Planet. Um, and this kind of is a positive, um, shows like the positivities of the university and how we're being quite ambitious, which is a good thing um, as we move to become more sustainable. However, um, in the University Sustainability Rankings in 2019 by People and Planet, uh, 2020 was not considered due to the pandemic. St. Andrews is 73rd in the UK and 5th in Scotland with a score of around 39.5%. Um, so we still have a very long way to go um, till, we get, um, till we get to where we need to be. But I think with our ambitions, with our um, strategic plans laid out, I think we'll find ourselves kind of moving through the ranks quite quickly. And hopefully with COP26 um, in Glasgow, it'll kind of push the momentum forward. And I feel like there's been, with the pandemic, with people being stuck home, they've kind of had the time to kind of learn about the current climate change crisis and are now demanding more from everyone, from the government, from corporations, from the university itself um, as well to kind of make making sure that strategy the strategic plan that people are laying out are not just words but they're actually putting it to action that's so interesting i didn't uh, these are obviously aren't like figures or like information that's being thrown around a lot um that's really interesting to hear my if you want to close up on that question as well so where we stand in comparison to other universities and then we can move on um yeah um so as part of my research last month i've been um, involving myself a lot with the COP26 Universities Network, which is basically a group of more than 55 UK-based universities who are working together on projects and podcasts and things like that. Um, so it's good to be able to see what all these other universities are doing in one place. Um, in terms of visibility, I think like Imperial, Glasgow, um, York, universities like that, they are kind of on the forefront because they have um, fellows that are leading the COP26 Uni um, network. Um, so hopefully our university is able to sort of um, take the lead over there. Um, also, another thing that I noticed through research is that universities like Edinburgh have had the opportunity to be part of other COPs. So they've been actively involved since like COP15. Um, so that's also an interesting front because we do have such wonderful projects going on um, over here and we have the 
like Monty said, the potential, the capacity to really just race ahead um, and take the lead in general in terms of sustainability and what it looks like in the UK. That's excellent to hear. Thank you so much. So it definitely seems as if we're in a good place. Um, I'm super jealous of the pivotal changes that um, you two will hopefully bring um, to the university's climate ambitions and international reputation as well. Okay, so the next part of our show, we're going to dive into the United Nations environmental governance regime and the various climate legislation and treaties of the past and the future. So the first question I'm going to ask Monty and my Indiana is about the Paris Agreement. And I'm wondering specifically why the Paris Agreement was considered such a success or alternatively, as we see now with rising emissions, not a success. Um, perhaps, Diana, you want to take this one and then Monty, you go after and then May. Yeah, okay. So um, in my view, um, I believe that the Paris Agreement pulled through where Copenhagen failed. Um, so the, the Paris Agreement followed a series of unsuccessful conferences, so like Lima, Copenhagen, Warsaw, Cancun, I think that's how you say it, um, which essentially saw countries largely disagree over finance, levels of responsibility, issues of justice, among many others. Um, and because of the 2013 Warsaw decision and the Lima call for climate action, Paris was largely basically became this like hybrid architecture, which was able to combine a bottom-up approach that promoted flexibility and participation, as well as this um, top-down system of international rules that promoted ambition and accountability. So I think with this framework in mind, Paris went a lot more smoothly. So like China and the US, they were able to actually work constructively together. The decision-making was much more realistic, um, I think as well, and many, countries had actually changed their, um, I guess, they had changed their um, climate change ambitions and they'd grown a lot to reflect that of like global norms and attitudes. Um, so by the by the Paris Agreement. So I think a combination of all of those factors um, helped make it a success. So I think largely like the success of the Paris Agreement can be pinpointed as like the first time there was this big global consensus in the field. And it definitely sent this message out to the world that for once everyone was serious about climate change. But I guess I disagree about the content itself actually being successful. But in terms of a conference, I think it was. Yeah, I'd kind of, oh, sorry. Uh, I'd kind of agree with you there, uh, Deanna. Like it was a success because it was like a legally binding and universal agreement um, amongst the countries. However, I mean, the other aspect was it's a lot of it is still just words and little actions have been really put in place. But I suppose majority of the agreements were saying that they'll start in 2020. So only time will tell whether um, countries will actually start abiding to um, what they agreed upon. And it's also a success because it's the first step of hopefully many, many more steps in a redevelopment of society and human civilization to accommodate our population. In other words, it has, it was a first step in becoming and evolving into a true, in humans and accepting that we're true planetary species, um, which is something that has been like known and um, we've known it since at least the end of the first world war. Yeah, um, I, I agree with both of you there. May, do you maybe want to offer some thoughts? Um, yeah, I think they've covered most of the important things. And just the fact that um, 
it's it has regardless of its success created conversation and dialogue um amongst different stakeholders and not just governments and um well people who are explicitly trying to work towards um climate change and i think that is really important um and yeah because a lot of its um goals are set in like in terms of accountability and the um just reporting the ndcs um, that are involved they're mainly starting from 2020 and 2021 so it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds yeah i think i agree with all of you that paris was a success on the basis that it was the first time that everyone kind of reached a global consensus that the climate crisis is a real threat is an emergency and we need to act on it however I mean, if the Paris Agreement is about cutting emissions, then by all means, it has not succeeded yet. Um, like I said earlier in the show, we're on track to cut emissions by 0.5% by 2030, which is just nowhere near the levels that need to be cut. So the whole architecture that Diana mentioned about combining top-down with bottom-up is certainly innovative in a sense that I think it forged more consensus. But the issue, of course, is that these are not legally binding. So the respective goals for countries, like what are called nationally determined contributions, are settled. You know, the country comes up with what they want to commit to, but if they don't commit to that, or if they don't see that goal through, there is no real penalty. So it remains to be seen if countries remain captured by fossil fuel interests, or if they're actually going to increase their targets and fight for 1.5 degrees, or at a bare minimum two degrees. So I think it's fair to praise certain aspects, but also we should all reserve criticism and hold our leaders accountable. Shifting to COP26, I'm wondering what everyone's hopes are for this really seminal um, treaty or the seminal um, conference of parties, because you know, five years after Paris, or I guess since it's been delayed, it's six years, this is a time for all the countries to really ratchet up their targets and show more ambition. So I guess, Diana, do you want to start again and offer some of your thoughts? Yeah, so about COP26, um, I was going to mention this at the start, actually, um, but we kind of ran out of time. I think I, ba I basically I attended a conference last week um, where um, the US um, Special Envoy for Climate Change, Secretary John Kerry, was at. Um, and we basically were talking about how there's this like general consensus um, that there's going to be that this is going to be a chance for everyone to sort of um, sort of motivate themselves again and set higher ambition targets. Um, I think that is generally what everyone's thinking that, you know, we've kind of been pushed back a bit because of COVID. So they're hoping that um, this is going to be a new chance to sort of reiterate and re-experience the like euphoria that was experienced um, back at Paris. But I think personally, I'd like to see the topic of carbon tax brought up. So um, it's certainly worked in a lot of countries in which it has been implemented. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. So I think I would definitely like to see, you know, a couple a couple countries standing up and saying you know this is what's worked for us this is what hasn't and then almost like building on each other's experiences it's I think it's a great opportunity with our six years well it would be six years since the Paris Agreement to sort of say this is what has worked this is what hasn't and it's almost like this forum of what can we implement how can we follow what they're doing so I think definitely that and as long as carbon yeah. tax is one of those um, topics yeah, definitely I think that's really important to bring up that you know maybe carbon tax could be a solution that gets more consensus as it is still very much within the status quo. Monty, what are your hopes for COP26? 
Um, I mean, I think a lot, a lot of people would agree with me. I just kind of want more, a little bit more action than words. I mean, Dan, it's kind of funny that um, how you said, oh, like the pandemic, the pandemic's kind of set people back. But I found a lot of my readings said that people actually only really reached their carbon goals um, of 2020 because of the pandemic, because how they had to kind of basically stop productions and limit the resources that they gave out to the um, consumers. That's how they reached their um, goals. And so for me, I just want to see a bit more action rather than just words, because, yes, it's great to have all these ambitions and leaders saying, yes, we'll do that. But I mean, actions speak louder than words. And I kind of hope that also um, what was brought up in uh, Paris, um, Paris, it wasn't agreed by all countries, mainly India, China and US, the major ones. But France's kind of regenerative farming, the four. Um, 1000 initiative uh, soils for food security and climate, which has been proven and data shows that it can be a real kind of car carbon capture system and kind of help bring carbon neutral a uh, carbon neutral world to reality. Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right that action speaks louder than words and we need to see action. May, what are your hopes for COP26? Um, I think it's happening at a really interesting time of what Diana and Monty do mention uh, with COVID-19 just um, before this a lot of people sort of just looking at what's going to happen there are a lot of hopes universally but I think it's also important that the US in particular because there's a change in political climate they have come back into the Paris Agreement and Biden hopefully will be a bit more honest in because they've constantly denied their uh, their like, accountability or their contributions to what's happening um, worldwide. So hopefully there's a bit more honesty and there's a bit of a difference in in terms of the atmosphere that's built at COP26. Yeah, I definitely share your sentiment that the U.S. needs to step up. Um, yeah, I, I mean personally, what I'm hopeful about is that countries exhibit real ambition and that it's not just a fiasco greenwashing or you know spitting out fossil fuel um fossil fuel talking points but that countries are taking this threat seriously and that they will act on this global emergency so hopefully the targets that they set in paris in 2015 will be ratcheted up to the point that perhaps two degrees is increasingly more viable because at this point 1.5 seems out of reach um yeah so i guess shifting more towards home i'm wondering what is the uk's position for cop 26 and are we feeling optimistic about it diana do you want to maybe take this one on yeah um honestly um there's a lot that's going on so actually monty and um, my before they were talking about where the all like universities stand on it i think that if we had kept um, COP26 to the original uh, deadline, which was November 2020, I think we would have had a lot more success. I know that Boris Johnson, he'd pledged that 2020 was going to be our defining year of climate action. Um, but unfortunately, that got sidetracked by a pandemic. Um, I don't think he's picking up on this momentum again, unfortunately, but it will be great. To, but it's. I think it's great that he has released a... Um, 
like a green plan um, in advance. Of course, the ambitiousness of that could be questioned, but it definitely aligns with the objectives that were talked about at Paris. Um, so I believe that's um, the UK's position so far, but I'm sure uh, Monty Ome would know a bit more about that. Yeah, Monty Ome, do any of you guys want to speak up about the UK's position on COP26? Mm, yeah, mate, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I th think it's really interesting because Alok Sharma is uh, leading the UK in terms of the cabinet and he's been really active with the COP26 Universities Network and there's a lot of passion and ideas that he's bringing to the table, which seems way more genuine and less self diplomatic political in that sense. Um, uh, so, yeah, it, it will probably be really interesting to see the way they involve. Um, at the end of the day, they involve different stakeholders in the UK. Yeah, Monty, do you have anything to add? Um, well, it'll just be quite interesting because it'll be the first time the UK will act as a nation state and not part of the EU. And so I think this is kind of a major opportunity for the UK to kind of set a precedent for years to come. And I just really hope that they don't hold back and that they are ambitious. And they kind of do set the way for countries to follow. Yeah. Um, it is really interesting to think that the Industrial Revolution and carbon capitalism originated in the United Kingdom and spread all over the world and to a large degree is responsible for this crisis. So now this pivotal conference coming back to the UK is kind of a moment for redemption and for the UK to really take a leading role and to you know, kind of corral other countries to be more ambitious and to take this crisis seriously, as they themselves also, of course, have to do. Um, you know, thinking more about these conferences, I'm wondering where does success really come down to? Do you guys think it's down to the leaders themselves to hammer out an agreement? Is it the diplomats? Is it corporations being on board? What do you think success originates from? Diana, maybe you want to start again. Yeah, okay. Um so I, I actually think that um, our leaders do play a pivotal role. Um, you can definitely see this with like the US, for example. Um, so like the difference between the Biden administration and um, Trump, there's definitely been a huge difference. I know that there's a lot of pressure right now on, this was again in the conference that I was at um, last week, but there's actually this big idea that India and its leadership is going to play a huge role in the COP26 um, because of something to do like the decentralization and um, devolving power and um, in sort of their finance and their climate green fund sort of initiatives. Um, so I do think leadership plays a huge role, but I'd actually argue that civil society will be more influential, or at least it should be. Um, I think leaders actually are largely out of touch with what people want. And um, so with like Secretary John Kerry last week, for example, um, we were talking about the urgency of the climate action, but then he picks up a plastic water bottle in the middle of the conversation. And after that, I kind of just didn't trust him. I thought, well, how can you be preaching all of this and then not going ahead and doing what you're talking about? Um, whereas I actually think civil society, they're much more, I guess, <laughs> down to earth in that sense. They um they, they know what they want. And I think especially young people, they are willing to sort of go for it. So when um, when um, COP26 was 
well, cancelled for the first time or at least postponed, um, young climate activists from around the world still got together on an, on, in an online capacity and held this like mock um, 26 um, conference. Um, and I think it just goes to show how much civil society is engaging in climate action. And I think it's time that they should be listened to. So I think ultimately, actually, the success will, go, will be down to how much leaders are listening to what their citizens are telling them to do. Yeah, certainly, because I think the climate crisis remains like a very urgent issue among citizens. And despite what the media tells us, and despite like obviously the partisanship and tribalism, most people agree that we need to act on climate change. So I hope that leaders take those concerns seriously. And yeah, I guess the plastic water ball is like very bad optics, but let's hope that Kerry takes this seriously as well. Monty, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, so yeah, kind of similar um, ideas with Deanna. Like I think the leaders really don't have, aren't going to be the determination factor of whether this conference is a success or not. It's really climate change crisis. It's everyone's fight. Um, Earth is everyone's home, and therefore it's every person on this planet on whether it's um, a success story or not. And kind of similar to Deanna, it is up to kind of civil society to push um the leaders to make sure that they are ambitious that they set high goals and that we reach those goals because at the end of civil society we are the consumers so everything that in industries make we are the, the ones buying it we're the ones funding them uh, whether they're polluting the air or trying to reach a carbon neutral goal and even with donald trump as president president um the past four years in the states you look at it caused major setbacks but also if, if you looked at the private sectors and the states individually they also made goals themselves to be ambitious and kind of tossed um trump and his, his kind of cabinet aside and said no even though you've pulled us out of the paris agreements we still want to move to um carbon neutral yeah really good point i think civil society has a big role to play to push leaders in the right direction may do you have any um other comments to add um yeah just a small thing because diana brought up the role that india has to play um and i did do a bit of research and reading because i was intrigued um just the fact that well even though leaders set presidents um cops are a huge conference difference that they can make there is a huge gap between what these leaders are doing on a global scale and what the people of the countries understand. Um, I could personally contribute to situation the fact back home, at least with the youth, we're still so in a stage where we're still sort of accessing information, trying to mobilize um, our understanding around climate change and environmental issues in India as compared to the UK where it is way more advanced and forward because the leaders have made a difference. So as much as it is also within civil society's responsibility um, to push their leaders, to some extent, leaders should also take extra steps to involve um, people of their countries, which is not happening back home. Um, so yeah, I think they can play a role there. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think that, it is certainly very important for leaders to, you know, 
talk to their citizens and talk to their constituents about what they want and how they want to act on this global emergency. And personally, I think a lot of the success comes down to perhaps a combination of things. The driving force perhaps behind success is activists or are activists who really want to push a bold, ambitious agenda and leaders who remain kind of ensnared in the status quo and don't really want to act on it with urgency because, of course, the status quo is benefiting them. That's part of the reason they got into power. So I think activists play a very crucial role in, in, in pushing the margins. And also, like all of you said, civil society plays a very crucial role. The network of NGOs, which have come to be and come to fruition as kind of a continuous push on the climate issue and on the environment on, on the environmental front, excuse me. So those combination of forces of so civil society activists and then leaders heeding those calls. And you know, when they're in the consensus room or at the drawing board, they actually come up with something that is urgent, bold, and ambitious. Hopefully COP26 will be success. Our planet des desperately needs it. Our people need it. And all of the you know living creatures on the world need it. So let's hope for a real success. Yeah, so that about wraps up our show. Um, thank you, Monty and Mai, for joining us. It was such a pleasure having you on. Make sure to continuously you know, look out for any initiatives they put out about COP26. I also want to highlight that the elections for association positions are happening. So I think voting goes live tonight at 12 and then closes on the 5th. So make sure to exercise your political and civic duty vote. It's really important that we elect people um, with urgency and foresight with the coming issues, whether that be COVID, climate, social justice, et cetera. So yeah, be on the lookout for that. And I'm just going to finish off with a song here and we'll see you all next week, same time Wednesday at 8 p.m. Thanks so much. <laughs>